Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in His image to reflect His glory and grace. All right, well, welcome again to Icon. Uh, It's good to have you here. If I hadn't introduced myself before, my name is Justin, and uh, I'm lead pastor here. And uh, you're coming kind of right in the middle of a series that we've called Confronting Genesis. We're looking at the first 12 chapters of Genesis, um, but kind of through the lens of big questions about God and life and all kinds of different things. So we've talked about kind of what does it mean to have meaning and purpose, and where does that come from? talked about uh, human dignity and work and rest and gender and sexuality and all kinds of things. Um, And tonight we're talking about evil and suffering, pain and suffering. Um, Before we get into the text, though, I I do want to give a little bit of a teaser for next week. Um, Not sermon related, though. That'll be fantastic, I'm sure. Um, But we have a big announcement to make next week. And uh, I just want to tease that so that you'll all come back next week. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's gigantic and earth-shattering. It'll change everyone's life, uh, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. I know what it is, but I'm not going to tell you until next week, okay? So uh, make sure you're here next week for that. It's good news, uh, I promise, but it's next week, okay? Uh, We'll talk about that. Uh, You have a question in the back? Ah, good question. Uh, You'll find out next week. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, Great question. Um, So uh, we're talking about suffering and pain, and here's what I know about suffering and pain. Every single person in the room has either recently come out of some season of suffering, you are currently in some season of suffering, or you're about to enter some season of suffering. And and there's really no exception to being in one of those three categories. Now, maybe what you're experiencing, you wouldn't describe as suffering because that's just a big word and and seems like uh, maybe a little much for what you're dealing with. But um, pain and suffering and uh, harm, it takes on many forms. And oftentimes what we think are some of the biggest sources of suffering end up not being, and some of the things that we don't pay a lot of attention to end up kind of insidiously working Uh, even more cancerously than some of the more obvious things. So um, the experience of suffering is the constant in our human experience. And so um, here's what I know then about a a passage like this or a a topic like this, and it's very similar to what I said before talking about gender and sexuality, and it's this. We are going to talk about some of the intellectual arguments and some of the ways that we should think about this But what I know is that this is an intensely personal thing, that the suffering and the pain and the harm and the hardship that you've experienced is not an intellectual exercise. It is an experience that feels as close to the core of who you are as anything in our experience, anything in our human experience. So I I want to be careful to not just kind of uh, uh, try to bring clarity to the issue at an intellectual level, but also um, as much as you can in this kind of context, um, uh, acknowledge and enter into the fact that this is, we're talking about real people who are living real lives and are suffering in very real ways, many of whom are experiencing that today. Okay, so to do both is uh, kind of impossible, and so we're going to try anyway. Um, so I want to I start with this. Often, um, what we hear in, at a national level uh, when, when kind of uh, big catastrophes happen is some version of um, how could a good and powerful God allow such pointless suffering? Or uh, maybe put another way, why do bad things happen to good people? And, and this question of suffering is often one of the most cited reasons why people don't have faith, and certainly not faith in the Christian vision of God. They would say, if your vision of God is of a loving, all-loving, and all-powerful God, then how could he allow such suffering at, at this scale? 
And I, I don't doubt the fact that some people really do wrestle with that issue, but I also think that it is often a, a red herring or um, a, a kind of put off reason to take seriously um, the, the faith that is before them because of all of the other kind of baggage or uh, behavioral expectations that they believe comes along with it. So what I think is actually a more relevant question and one we will get into is, why is this thing happening to me? I think that's the question that we ask more often than not. And that's the question that is really at the core of the struggle that we have. That yes, there is an intellectual problem with that suffering that is out there, but what we really struggle with is the suffering that is in here. So I want to try to address both of those questions, and I want to do so kind of three things uh, this, the, during this sermon. One, I want us to think hard about the question itself and maybe think a little harder than we have. And I don't know how, much you've, how hard you've thought about it, but I'm going to just push you to think a little harder about it. Two, I want us to see what the Bible says about suffering and evil. And then three, I want to get personal and talk about how you deal with your suffering. Okay, so first, um, the problem that we are discussing is usually articulated kind of like how I already said. Either why do bad things happen to good people or how can a good and powerful God allow so much pointless suffering in the world? So um, there's a lot of presuppositions baked into those two questions that I want to just tease out a little bit just so we understand what question we are actually asking, and and just to make sure we understand what we're thinking about. So first, if you are not a a Christian, I would ask you, what is a bad thing? What is a bad thing? If we say, why do bad things happen to good people? What, if you are not a Christian, what is a bad thing? How do you know what is bad? Do you mean morally bad? Because morally bad compared to what objective rule or what objective expectation? If you are a consistent atheistic materialist, there is no objective rule for morality because that has to be extrinsic. It has to be given to us. And so if we start this conversation as materialists, then the most we can say is um, that a bad thing is something I don't want to happen or I don't want to see happen, but we can't make objective statements about their moral good or evil. They cannot say, we, as if you're a materialist, cannot say something is uh, objectively bad. The argument itself depends on the idea of God. Second, if you are not a Christian, then on the flip side, what is a good person? The same problem exists. You don't have any objective way to describe a good person and therefore no way to say what they do or don't deserve. And that's that's really what we're saying, that something has happened to a person that is unfair, that the, the, the outcomes of their life do not match kind of the inputs of their behavior, and we're saying it's unfair. But if we are not Christian, I would ask, by what measure do we say something is unfair? What are our expectations? And do we have a consistent way to um, kind of observe the world and say, yeah, that outcome does not match this behavior, and then Why? Okay. So we've talked about this a lot, so I don't want to belabor this point. This is something we've hit kind of all along the way, but the consistent atheist, the consistent materialist cannot add onto life moral categories, which then does not allow them to say anything meaningful and definitely not anything emotionally satisfying about the experience of pain. They simply cannot name things evil or good. Those are categories that materialism does not allow them to have. So they can say, I don't like that, but then so what? There's lots of things I don't like. 
So there, it doesn't give us the, cat the categories to say anything meaningful about something we know is true, something that we experience to a great degree. So we experience pain, but for the atheist, life is pain, life is suffering, life is death. The whole existence of animal and human life is one long game of survivor where the strongest survive, everyone else dies, and that's how we make progress. So to say somebody shouldn't die at the hands of someone stronger is to say that the mechanism that got us here is now failing us in some sort of moral way. And that's just massively inconsistent. Okay, so now what if you're a Christian? Okay, so if you're a Christian, let's ask ourselves this. What is a good person? Right, Christians believe, the Bible teaches, that all people are in rebellion against God and in rebellion against each other, that all of us are grasping for autonomy and grasping for our place in this world. And the Bible says that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So then none of us would claim that we or any other person is perfect or without fault. So who is this good person that doesn't deserve bad things? On the other side of it, if you are a Christian, what is a bad thing? Let's at, least, let's at least answer that question for ourselves before we just say things like, well, what good things happen or bad things happening to good people is, I mean, good things happen to bad people, equally frustrating. But when bad things happen to good people, that, that this would be some sort of argument for us. Let's, let's at least think hard about what we're saying. So what are these bad things? Is it something that's morally wrong? Is it a catastrophe that occurs? Is it a mishap that leads to pain and suffering? And then even within that, if something causes us pain, but we can clearly see a greater good coming from it, is it still bad? So then is a bad thing simply something painful that we cannot see good coming from? Is that the idea? So when we say, how could a good, benevolent, powerful God allow so much pointless suffering in the world? Really, that whole statement hangs on the word pointless. So we assume that because we can't see the point, therefore there cannot, could not possibly be a point, and therefore it is pointless and then unjust. So what is our expectation as we look at the world? Is our expectation that everyone should live a painless life and die in their sleep at 100 years old, surrounded by friends and family, softly singing Amazing Grace? And that anything short of that is unjust or unfair? Now, I, I ask these questions not to, to uh, push aside the realities of your pain at all. Simply, in fact, if anything, the opposite, to draw us in to actually pay attention to what it is we're talking about, what it is that seems wrong, what it is that seems unjust, and then ask ourselves these questions, why? Because my kids tell me all the time that I'm not fair, and I ask them, usually my eldest is the one, Lily, says, uh, you know, tells me all the time that something is unfair, and I remind her that she gets to stay up late and watch Harry Potter when none of the other kids do, so does she really want life to be fair? And she quickly says no. So let's, let's think hard about what it is we're asking. Second, building off this idea, Every single one of us has had some experience in our lives that in the moment was excruciatingly painful that we now look back on and say, yes, that was painful, but I wouldn't change it for the world. Every one of us has that story. I know I do. I, I spent four of the hardest years of my life planting a church in San Francisco and at the end of it was asked by the leaders around me to take a sabbatical because they thought I needed a break. I was burned out and, and a mess inside and they stepped in and said, man, we love you and we think you need a break. And I hated that. Everything in a moment was torn away from me. 
The church that I'd planted, relationships that I'd known, the city that my family loved, that we had had two of our 14 kids in. And in a moment, I don't know if you're new, I have five, it feels like 14 to everyone. In a moment, it was torn away from me, and I thought, this is wrong, this is unjust, this is unfair, I hate this, and today, as much as I hate to say this out loud, I'm glad it happened. It needed to happen. And every one of us has that story. I'm not saying that's what's happening with the suffering that you're dealing with today, or that every piece of suffering, every moment of suffering of experience falls into that category. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that each and every one of us has had that story, and so it at least introduces the idea that the suffering that we don't currently see the point in may have a point that we just don't see yet. And, and, and there's like a paradigm for this. We know that suffering can produce good. There's a lot of suffering we willfully walk into, right? We work out. Right, And that is, that is, that is a, a suffering that we walk into on purpose because we know that if we suffer well through a workout, we come out better and stronger and in uh, more better shape, more better shape, and uh, better at talking. And, uh, and, and you know, all, there's, there's obvious benefit from it. And there's all kinds of things. We start businesses, we take risks, we meet people, we enter into relationships, we take tests, we do all kinds of things that we know are suffering and we, we, we believe some good is coming out on the other side of it. And so there are just these certain moments where we are in the midst of a thing and we can't see the suffering, we can't see the point of it, and so we assume that there is no point. But that's quite an assumption. It's quite an assumption just in terms of our own human experience. It's quite an assumption just in terms of uh, what we know about ourselves and, and what that says about what we think about ourselves, that we ought to be the kinds of people that can see all outcomes. And if not, there can't be a good outcome. Tim Keller speaks to this and says that if there is a God big enough and powerful enough for you to blame for all of life's sufferings, isn't it possible that that same God is big enough and powerful enough to have reasons for it that you can't know? Third, I want us to ask ourselves if if we blame God for the pain and suffering in the world, that we would ask ourselves, what is it that you would actually want God to do differently? Would, would you want God to intervene to stop the murders and the assaults and the wars? Maybe. But would you want him to intervene to stop the lying and the manipulating and the abuse? Possibly. But would you want him to intervene to stop the cursing and the stealing and the fighting? Would you want him to intervene to stop the speeding and the texting and the red light running? Would you want him to intervene to stop the passive aggressiveness, the backstabbing and the gossip? What about the lust and the selfishness and the pride? Would you want him to intervene to stop all of your actions, words, and thoughts? Do you want him to intervene to stop all of your freedom? Do you want to be a puppet? Do you want to be a robot and for those around you to be robots as well? I know my son would say yes. He recently did. But that's, that's, what's, that's the risk of freedom. The, the risk, freedom to live To choose and to love is the same freedom that allows us to kill, destroy, and hate. That's the risk of freedom. And so when we say, well, we would want God to intervene to stop these things happening, we go, okay, we might all agree that we want God to stop, intervene, and stop all the wars and all the murders and all the assault and all the other things that are happening at this terrible level. But then we go, okay, but would we want him to stop all this stuff? And would we want him to stop all this stuff? And we would want, would we, at what point do we want him to let us be free? Lastly, if your life were truly free from pain and strife, would you ever think about God? 
Would you ever think about God? Would you ever pray? Would you ever attend church? Would you ever read your Bible? If your answer is yes, ask yourself this. Do you pray more often during times of pain or times of prosperity? Do you get focused on your faith and attend church more often when things are good or when things are hard? Are you more aware of the fragility of your humanity and the strength of God when you are killing it or when you are being killed? See, prosperity and ease also is a blindness. It creates this sheen, this mask of self-sufficiency that really only pain has the power to take away. To reveal what's always been true. It's not that pain actually makes you weaker or more in need of God. That never changes. You are always super weak and always in great need of God. It's just that prosperity can can fool us into thinking otherwise. That when things are going super well, we believe, even if just subtly, implicitly believe, that all that's going good is because we are really strong and really able. And it's only when that kind of, the, the, the chair is pulled out from under us that we then realize how dependent we were on the chair this whole time. And so it, it strikes me as very possible that some the suffering we see around us is simply to open our eyes to what is real and what is true, to rip off the mask of self-sufficiency in our lives. Now, here's the point of all of this. The question of how a good and powerful God could allow such suffering is complicated. Far from being a nail in the coffin of Christianity, in fact, I would argue that it is more difficult to answer as an atheist because you lose all of your helpful categories. You cannot say something is evil even when it clearly is. You cannot say something should not be even though it clearly should not. You cannot claim that something is unjust suffering because all of life is death and suffering with no greater point. Consistent atheistic materialism is deeply unsatisfying emotionally because it cannot make sense of what we all know is true, which is pain and suffering is wrong and it's not how the world should be. We know that. The tiniest child knows that. Every time my children experience pain, the tiniest, infinitesimal tiny pain, they freak out because they know that this is wrong. I take their crying and over-exaggerated over response as deep theological statements about what is true about the world. They know it's wrong and so they cry They wail, they thrash because they know that a skinned knee is from Satan. Christianity has the philosophical and theological resources to make sense of what we all know is true, that pain and suffering are not what this world was supposed to be like. We know that. So I want us to look at Genesis chapter three for just a moment. Genesis chapter three, verses one through 22 is the Christian story that answers this larger question of what is wrong with the world. It lays out what I think are three primary causes of evil in the world and then a whole slew of effects. And this chapter, I mean, Books and books and books and books have been written on this chapter alone, so if it feels like we're moving through it quickly, uh, it's because we are. Starting in chapter three, verse one. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, this this story is meant to be kind of paradigmatic for how Christianity sees evil in the world. What I mean by that is not that it's not a historical story, that's not the point, but it is also speaking to a larger issue, a pattern of how evil is introduced in the world and then how evil is perpetuated in the world. And we see kind of three primary causes in this first half of the story. The first is the deception of Satan. Now, Christians forever have believed that there is God and that God is all good and all powerful and that he created all kinds of heavenly beings called angels and that at some point, somewhere down the line, one of them, a guy named Satan, guy an angel named Satan, uh, rebelled against God in a desire to be equal with God, to have some sense of autonomy, and he fell from the angelic host and has been since then working to destroy God's creation, to undermine God, ultimately to make us suffer, reject God, and die, okay? He's bad, okay? That's, that's the big idea on Satan. And, and here's the thing, like, I know that sounds crazy to us, right? In, in our modern scientific world, that that idea that there's some demonic force called Satan working in some unseen spiritual realm to undermine our life and tempt us away from God, deceive us and kill us, sounds crazy. And I'm good with that. Because a lot of things in our world sound crazy that are actually very true and important and good. And in fact, I think one of the great deceptions of Satan is to move us to a place where the idea of the spiritual realm altogether sounds crazy. It's just the kind of thing the deceiver would do. So we start with this idea that there is a very real spiritual realm that there is a very real being known as Satan who in a very real way is working to deceive and undermine and and kind of move us towards rebellion. This is the beginning of this story, this temptation towards rebellion. And in uh, in the sense that um, Satan is deceiving and, and tempting and all of these things, he is never to blame. Like we have autonomy of choice But within that, there is always the work of Satan to deceive and destroy and move and cause us to rebel and just get us one degree off of what God wants for us. And that that is a present reality. But that two, the most common way in which Satan kind of undermines is by appealing, as he did in this story, to our pride. There is one thing in Genesis 3, that Adam and Eve did not have. And that was deity, basically. They had everything that their hearts could desire. They had access in a very intimate way to God. They had all of the food they could eat. They had everything they would want. They were naked and unashamed and just living their best life. This was all good. Satan came in and said, hey, there's this thing you don't have. There's this one thing you could be. There's this difference between you and God, and that's a gap that until then they had never experienced as a gap. They experienced life with God as this kind of complementary, like they loved being created beings in view of their creator, in relationship with their creator, until Satan came and said, but you could be but you could be more, you could be autonomous, you could be God. You could be like God, knowing good and evil, because up until that point, they did not know evil. 
all of their life had been good. And it creates this gap in the minds of Adam and Eve. This gap that before had never been experienced. And we've talked about this before, that one of the, I think, most insidious things about what's happening in our culture today, kind of contra what we see in the scriptures, is this. That the very first sin in the Bible is Adam and Eve throwing off the authority of God in their life and trying to usurp that place, God's authority and kind of autonomy in their life. And in our culture today, the highest good is this idea of throwing off all external authority and being able to live this kind of free and liberated self. And so the highest activity is kind of unfettered self-expression. So that's a pretty remarkable shift From here in Genesis chapter three, what was the core of all evil and rebellion to now being our culture's highest good. So we see Satan deceiving, we see temptation to our pride, and then lastly, the failure of the rest of our community. If you didn't notice this in uh, verse six, The end of verse six, it says, she took, Eve took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. If you remember in chapter two, God said that the only thing that wasn't good in his creation was that mankind was alone that we needed each other, that man needed woman, that he needed community, he needed help, that he was essentially needy and not self-sufficient. And so God gave him Eve so that he could be more fully alive, more fully human, more fully obedient to God. So now here, though physically present, Adam abandons Eve and allows her to disobey God without intervening in love. He's standing right there, close enough that she took and ate of the fruit and handed it to him, and he ate too. He heard the whole pitch, and instead of stepping in as a fellow image bearer, as a fellow person given uh, uh, dominion over the earth, to step in and go, no, Eve, remember what God said. As we all need each other to do, when we are isolated, we are at greatest risk of being deceived. And yet in her moment of need, Adam was absent, emotionally and spiritually, if not physically. And then from there, everything kind of falls apart. It says, then the eyes of both were opened, verse seven, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? I love that line. It's one of my favorite lines in the whole Genesis account. Who told you you were naked? They've literally been naked this whole time. Uh, I've mentioned, I think, that I have kids. Um, There's always this point at which they realize they're naked, right? Like, and that that's a thing. We call it naked. In our house, I mean, not me and Emily, but like with the kids, um, we call it being naked. And, uh, and, and there's a point at which like they realize, like my, my youngest is almost two and he'll run around naked and we have to go, oh, Will's naked. And you see this light go on like, oh, that's a thing. I just, I was just, I was just here and now I'm a thing called naked, right? And eventually they'll learn that that's a bigger thing, but uh, it's a, it's a hilarious kind of human moment kind of implanted here in the text. Anyway, things I like. Verse 11, he, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Immediately, the impact of their decision begins to spread to all of God's creation. We, we read here over and over that, that God says cursed is, and I don't think we should think about this as God with a magic wand cursing things like he's in Harry Potter, but to, as a description of the effects of sin infiltrating every inch of God's creation. As a result of their sin, everything became broken and cursed and in rebellion against its purpose. Immediately, Adam and Eve realized they were naked and they hid from God. They feared vulnerability and so they covered themselves. Their relationship with God fundamentally changed from intimate friend and trusted king to one of guilt, fear, and threat. They blamed each other for their sin, shunning personal responsibility and no doubt causing relational strife. Their fear and shame kept them from simply repenting to God and restoring their relationship with him. And the, all the curses, animals and their bodies and relationships and environment and, the, and work and life itself, all of these aspects of life cursed. Sin is like water flowing into all of the cracks. It fills every nook and cranny with rebellion. And then this same pattern of autonomy and rebellion over and over and over for thousands of years of human history and among millions of people and the, the ways in which all of those people have sinned against each other and hurt each other and brought harm and trauma to each other all over these millions and millions of people over thousands of years of human history and you arrive at today with all of the pain, suffering, and brokenness in the world around us. So, why do bad things happen to good people? I don't know all the answers. But I know that if, if all of the bad things that ever happened were kind of in one concentric circle, that, that some of that stuff is all is the result of human choice. And so my circle gets a little smaller because we, I don't think any of us would vote for God to remove the freedom to choose, which just it has inherent in it the freedom of pain and suffering as well. And so of that big idea or all of the pain and suffering, we might say, well, some of it's human choice. And so our circle gets smaller. And maybe in some of that smaller circle, some of it we would say is pain and suffering that in the moment seemed bad. But then after we thought about it for a little while, we would say, yeah, it was bad, but it served a greater purpose. And so then we're left with even less. And here's the thing. There's something in our culture, there's something in our minds, there's something in us that says, if I don't understand it, it cannot be. There's something about the, the scientism in our culture. I am absolutely pro-science. I think every Christian should be pro-science because we are exploring God's world and learning more and more and more and more about him. But there's a difference between the, the good of science and a scientism and a philosophy that says if science can't explain it, then it isn't so, that is arrogant to its core. And there's a version of this that is playing out kind of that way to say, well, if I don't see a point, then there can't be a point, and that is arrogant. So here's the thing. I don't know how you're suffering, but if your suffering cannot be explained by human causes, a way in which a human has harmed you or sinned against you, and it cannot be explained yet by something you say, well, that was hard, but, but you know what? It was for a greater good. And you're left with this core in the middle and, and you say, but what about this? 
I don't see why this. But what about, what about that? Here's the thing. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why that one thing has happened. I don't know if we'll ever know why that one thing has happened. I have no idea. But I know God. So I don't know why that thing happened, but I do know God. I knew, and I know that God created this world to be perfect. And I know that part of that perfect world was human freedom to make the choices that we make and that there have been ripple effects of our human freedom, that when we make one bad decision, it is not self-contained to that moment, that we do harm to other people and the ways in which we were harmed as children affect us as adults. And so anytime I think about raising my kids, I think, gosh, it is not a question of if I'm screwing up my kids. The question is, how am I screwing up my my kids, and how is what I am currently doing going to make them screw up their kids in some particular way? And then you just do that generation after generation after generation, and it's amazing that any of us are sane. It's amazing. So I, I don't know why, but I know God. And I, I know that God created this world to be good. And so I can confidently look at certain things in our world and go, that's wrong. That's evil. And this is actually where I think Christianity offers the, the best, most satisfying answers to suffering and pain. Of, of any other faith or philosophy, Christianity has the most resources to help us deal with pain and suffering. It's one, we can name it. We can say something is evil. We can say something is wrong. We can call pain and suffering, pain and suffering. We can name it, and, and we have to because we all know it's true. We all know it's true. We all know it's wrong. And we can name it. Number two, we know where it comes from and why it happens. Not always, not always to the, to the point, but we know where most pain and suffering comes from. We know that the core of it is human rebellion against God and a grasp for autonomy that the vast majority of the pain and suffering we experience in our lives is the, is the outpouring out of generations of those decisions being made. Number three, and maybe most importantly of all, that we believe in a God who entered into suffering. And that is the great hope that we have. That when we are in the midst of suffering, that we should look for Jesus because he is near us. That in the midst of our pain and suffering, we should look to Jesus because he is speaking. He is there in it. Christianity is the only faith or philosophy that says God cares about our pain, cares about our suffering, is with us in it so much so that he entered into great personal suffering, incredible pain to show us a path to life, to actually blaze a trail to life. He took the very thing that Satan intended to be our greatest harm. He took the very thing that Satan intended to infect our world and destroy it. He entered into the greatest weapon of Satan and turned it into the greatest weapon for good. That is remarkable. And it, it creates this, not, not just that moment that Jesus' death on the cross creates a path to life for us, but also creates this kind of paradigm, creates a path for us that when we see pain, when we are in the midst of pain, we know that one time, at least one time, that the path into pain was the path all the way into pain and that the backside of that pain was life and good for all people so that we might confidently follow Jesus into the pain, knowing that it produces good. And last, that suffering reminds us not only of what should be, but what will be. And this is the hope of the gospel, that Jesus' triumph over pain and suffering and evil is a triumph that comes with a promise for us.
That when we repent of our sin, we repent of our rebellion, when we repent of our desire to usurp God and to claim our own autonomy and our own unfettered self-expression, we repent of all that and say, God, you are God and I am not God and I, I want to be a creature, not the creator. I want you to be sovereign over me. I trust that you make a far better God than I am and will you please be my God? When we walk that path of repentance and faith, faith that we know on the other end is glory. C.S. Lewis has this great line, and I want to finish with this. He says, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. That is the hope of the gospel. That is the hope of Christ's triumph on the cross. All right, let's transition to some questions. We have five fantastic questions, um, and I'm not going to get to them all. I don't know. Uh, for those of you who have noticed, we've started uh, recording uh, answers to the Q&A and putting them on Instagram. Uh, I think they call it Instagram TV, uh, if that's right. Yes. IGTV. Uh, and... Uh, so I hope that's been helpful, but I'll answer uh, two or three questions here and then the rest of it will be on there. So um, first question, would suffering exist if the fall didn't happen? Um, it's a great question. And, uh, and my answer is yes, because if it hadn't been them, it would have been the next person. That this is always the risk of human, of, of human freedom, of giving people freedom. It would have happened eventually, I think. You know, like I don't have a verse to say, thus says the Lord, but absolutely, okay? Uh, because somebody eventually would have grasped for that divinity. And so in that sense, I think it was an inevitability. Um, a more practical question it says, uh, since God is all powerful and all good, he must have a morally sufficient reason for the evil in the world. But we don't always get to see that reason. And this plays with our faith and, um, and emotions, plays with our faith and emotions. How do we balance our faith and trust in God with an emotional response to the evil that we see? How do we know when we are leaning on our intellectual trust or our emotional response too closely? This is a great question because it gets at one of the most important parts of, uh, of the Bible and of Christian theology and practice, which is that in almost every category, there exists, and I think on purpose, tension. That God has created tension in almost every serious category so that the answers are not clearly black and white. Because here's what happens. When an issue is black and white, we stop thinking about it and we no longer need God to consider it. And since God's highest desire is for us to love him, which means to be in relationship with him, I think God intentionally gives us tension so that we have to continue to pursue him in that tension. It's not obvious, we have to pursue. So this is a great example of that, where on the one hand, we might see evil and go, well, I have a theological category for that. God is good, and so there must be some, as this person wrote, morally sufficient reason for that. And you might say that to yourself. On the other hand, those things that are evil are still terrible. And they're still emotionally wrecking. And they are still harmful and awful. And so there is this tension for us to acknowledge emotionally the, the evil that is present in us. And so God has told us to mourn evil. Right, so uh, the story of Lazarus' death, right? Mary and Martha, his sisters, uh, come to Jesus and say, Lazarus has died, and what is Jesus' response? It's the shortest verse in the Bible. We should all know it. Jesus wept. He cried. Now, did Jesus cry because he thought, this is unjust, how dare God allow Lazarus to die? Did, did, he, did he cry because he didn't understand the greater purpose of what was happening? He didn't understand that, that human choice means death and rebellion against God means death? Did he cry because he didn't know he was about to go raise Lazarus from the dead? Spoiler alert. 
No. He died because death is sad. Because death is bad. And because we should mourn death, we should mourn evil in all its forms. We have to acknowledge it while never allowing our emotional response to then cloud what we know is true. Okay? So what we know is true is that God is good. And so no matter how bad something is and now, no matter how evil it is and how much emotional response we very appropriately should have, we ought never to look at the issue only through that lens, nor should we ever look at an issue only through the lens of kind of what we know intellectually or theologically and divorce the emotion from it. We are kind of full-bodied humans who have been given emotions to deal with the brokenness of this world. God calls us to mourn what is evil. So living in that tension is, I think, really important. And so the question is, ultimately, how do we know when we're leaning one way, too much one way or the other? Well, I think one, doing so in community will help you kind of reflect back to yourself, gosh, am I being overly emotional about this or overly kind of logical or intellectual about this? But I think, too, asking yourself, gosh, am I allowing myself to mourn or am I just quickly getting to, yeah, but God is good, so there must be a purpose? We need to get there eventually, but it takes time. And we ought to cry when things are sad. And we ought to cry out when things are bad and, 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 and cry out against kind of reprehensible moral evil that's happening in our world and declare that it's wrong. And then at the same time, understand and, and rest in the fact that God is good. One more question. Um, that same person said, I was tracking with most of the sermon and found it encouraging, though I was hoping you should shed some light on the big announcement you have for next week. No. <laughs> One more. How can we walk around with hope or a sense of security in Christ when we don't know if he will intervene? Do our prayers asking him to prevent suffering matter? Lot, I have a lot of thoughts on, on prayer, um, and, I, and I think that this is uh, an important issue, and I look forward to getting to talk about it in the future. Um, at the end of the day, our, our rootedness on this issue cannot be in our understanding of a particular situation, right? Like that, that can't be the final decision maker to the, the degree to which we understand why something happened cannot be the ultimate decider nor can our, our kind of theological clarity on an issue. The thing that has to be our foundation is our knowledge of God himself, our relationship to him, the trust we have in him, so that even when things don't make sense and aren't adding up for us, or we're in the midst of the emotional processing of pain, that we are rooted and we have hope in the fact that, listen, I don't know why this is happening, but I know God. And I can't actually put this in a theological category, but I know God. I know him. One of the very practical questions that I get all the time, and, and I, I've dealt with this in, in more times than I care to, to count, is when families lose a child, they always ask, will I meet that child in heaven? And the answer is, I don't know. The Bible does not say. But here's what I know. I know God. And I know he is good. And I know that God loves your child more than you do. And I, I mean, just the idea of losing one of my children is unthinkable to me. But I know that God loves my children and your children and all of the children more than you ever could. And that is what I stand on. The character of God, what I know about God is so much more important than what I know about the situation or what theological clarity or category, none of it. What I know about God and that God is good. And I rest in that. Amen? That's all we got. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.